0: Buildings On Air with Kiefer Dunn, on London Radio.
1: Welcome, welcome to this April 2021 episode of Buildings On Air, the show where we talk about left politics and architecture, sometimes more of one and less of the other. I'm your host, Kiefer Dunn, and... Uh, Yeah, we've been on this weird format for the last year, you know, for obvious reasons. Uh, And that means that we've been missing our regular segments. But, uh, you know, vaccinations are in the air. Well, not in the air, in our arms. And uh, things are starting to normalize a little bit. And uh, in that spirit, uh, we're we're gonna have the first Buildings on Air mailbag that we've had in over a year. For listeners who don't know, who have found the show in the last year, The Mailbag is our regular segment, uh, usually with Anne Louie and Craig Reschke of Future Firm, where we answer listener questions about buildings. Um, it's very fun. We tackle serious issues and silly issues. But I'm really excited uh, to be uh, um, sort of back at it with... Uh, uh our mailbag super subs nicholas Checky and emily hanley and uh also jamie jamie Trecker, super producer uh i've been kind of on my own recording this show jamie's been doing uh doing stuff in the background but jamie it's good to see you here
2: also thank you it's good to be back and it's good to uh start roasting you over strange strange architectural things again i've missed that yeah,
1: yeah. uh likewise and uh nick and emily thanks so much for joining how are you guys doing
0: it's great. I'm glad to be here. It's been a long time. I'm ready to answer some questions.
1: <laughs> awesome. Uh, well, shall we dive in? What do you guys
2: think? I think we should do it. By the way, I'm really impressed with your uh, wood molding behind you, Kiefer. That's, that's a really nice turn of the century uh, uh, background you. you've got in your house there. That's beautiful.
1: Yes. Um, uh, yeah. So uh, you know, this is of course an audio medium, Jamie. I don't know if you realize that, but so video uh, is
2: an audio medium. Next thing <laughs> you're gonna tell me is it's not the medium of the future, keeper. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. So well, what, what I what I have
1: behind me is yes, yeah, some some molding on uh, on top of some wainscoting here in my liver, living room, and um, yeah, I kind of use it like a picture rail. But I actually see that uh, Nick, in your background, you have a proper picture rail molding. Uh, maybe which is not a question on our list, but maybe we can go into that. Like, what is a picture rail molding? Because it's one of my favorite. It's one of my favorite pieces of molding. Because of course I have one of those. So.
3: Yeah, I mean it's a. Uh, it's really useful, and it usually sits at the the top of the wall, within a couple feet of the ceiling, and it has a nice profile that lets you put a hook on it and hang pictures without putting any nails or screws into your wall. It was popular in turn of the century up through maybe uh, 1920s art Deco construction. And like Kiefer's background, which of course the listeners can't see, um, it was a a common like feature and embellishment in Chicago turn of the century. uh, Bungalows, worker housing, two flats and three flats. And I don't know about yours Kiefer, but it's Often in, in uh, my house, it's this like old growth, really beautiful fur um, with like amazing graining and you just don't get this kind of wood anymore. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, Nick and Emily actually live down the street from me in a similar uh, house to mine where we're kind of all on this development that was turn of the century. Mine is, ni- what you yours yours? Mine's 1917.
0: 1909.
2: So yours is earlier than, than mine. Um, All the houses along this area of Bridgeport, we live in a park uh, in that neighborhood. They were built for railroad workers and people who were working in the meatpacking plants at the turn of the century. And a lot of the details in these houses were either made out of southern pine, which is hard as a rock, fir or red oak. Um, And in fact, I would bet, Nick, uh, that you have in your attic, if it's still original, you have those old quarter sawn, uh, oak planks as flooring which are unbelievable you know nobody would do that anymore just for a floor you know what i mean that stuff's incredibly expensive but that that picture rail um we had a house fire as regular listeners know so i don't have this anymore but we had picture rail we had chair rail we even had dental molding in our house and that was all very common accoutrements even for a middle-class family uh you know that was considered something you had to have and uh if you try to restore that after a fire, I want to tell you that uh, you're going to pay an extreme amount of money because this kind of craftsmanship and just the availability of the molding, it's almost impossible to get it anymore. There's there's no way to get something that has that kind of grain and color and even the usability uh, of these old things. Um, yeah. So it's something that you know people are now actually recycling it when they tear down these old houses or do uh, retrofitting. Um, because I'm sure yours is on, that's old horsehair plaster, right, Nick, I'm sure? Um, Correct. When we, when I started doing the house before the fire, I was taking that off, and I was dipping it. You know, I would take that wood off, and, and I would strip the old varnish off, because the varnishes they use at the turn of the century will eventually turn kind of a chocolate brown-black, and that's partly uh, oxidation, but it's also smoke if people smoked in the houses. And if you strip those down, they become a beautiful honey-amber color, uh, and you can really see everything on them, and it's it's fabulous. All these houses along here in this part of the city really had a lot of that gorgeous wood detail. Um, and so if you're if you're actually ever around like on the architectural tour and stuff, if you can stop by some of these two flats from that period, you'll see exactly what we're talking about. Yeah. Um,
1: yeah. Yeah, well, and, and Jamie, that might be pitch pine, which is harder because usually southern pine is actually pretty soft, but the, some of the old pitch pine yes, is thank you. really yeah, hard yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah I, the, I know one company called Moldings One that makes beautiful historic moldings, and I've always wanted to specify them for a project. Uh, but uh, well, don't mind a little bit of uh, but buzz buzz marketing there.
0: <laughs> Good stuff.
1: Um, yeah, so I. I I have a question here, a question uh, submitted by a friend of the show, Michael Ferguson. He's at Clammike on Twitter. Uh, and he he drew uh, to my attention a tweet from a Harvard epidemiologist who uh, was sort of talking about this the, the new standards for building ventilation that uh, we need to consider uh, in the context of a pandemic. And it was a really interesting tweet because this this epidemiologist um, came across ASHRAE standards, which are, of course, a big bug bugbear for this show. Uh, ASHRAE being the American Society of Heating and Refrigeration yeah, Engineers. Don't, don't I missed the let, letter. Let there. Ann, Is that right? Let, Is,
2: did I get that close? Yeah. Don't let Anne <laughs> louise hear that. That 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 in the door <laughs> lobby, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so so uh, you know, it's it's
1: the position of this host that all all of the standards developing organizations should be nationalized. So ASHRAE is a professional society of engineers who work on air conditioning equipment and heating equipment, um, but they also develop standards for buildings. And if uh, for those who don't know, most of the standards and codes that govern the vast majority of building construction in the vast majority of jurisdictions are developed by private NGOs like ASHRAE and then incorporated by reference into municipal and state laws, which often creates like a really weird situation where you have things that you are legally obligated to do by law, but to find out what they are, you have to pay to, to access it, uh, which always seems a little perverse to me. But this, this this Harvard epidemiologist who knows nothing about buildings, well, they know something about buildings, um, found out that the new CDC guidance for how we should be ventilating buildings in pandemic times, indirectly points people to ASHRAE standards for ventilation, uh, but that that is linked behind a paywall. So uh, my question here really is, uh, you know, I'm not sure if Nick and Emily, you've come across this sort of uh, thinking about some of the ways that we might modify or upgrade our building ventilation equipment and schemes. Um, in this new paradigm, um, but you know, there's lots of talk about ACH, it's just air changes for hour. So I'm wondering if you could kind of maybe share your experience and, and tell the listeners like, what is an ACH and why are epidemiologists talking about
0: it? Oh yeah, this has been like, one of the hotly debated things among um Architects that work primarily in office buildings and um, for people that run office buildings. So in my professional life, I, I do, I work almost exclusively on office buildings. My job is to make the places where all of you go to do your jobs. <laughs> um, and this has been something that's really interesting. How do we take some of these building systems and upgrade them to meet sort of our these new requirements, air handling units and these systems that push air around our buildings are not exactly the most adaptable sometimes. Um, but there are some things that we can look for and do to upgrade the system. So there's a lot in terms of filtering, getting the right filters on your air handling unit, so that as you, know, you pull air back in from a room treat it through the air handling, meaning heat it or cool it and then push it back out into the space that you're filtering out some of the particulates and working with it because most of the air within an office space is sort of the same air, right? You're not pulling that much from outside in. It's much more efficient to utilize the air that's sort of within the space and condition it over and over and filter it. Um, rather than pulling in outside air from outside the building, particularly in winter. So one of the things that's important is like, how often are we taking the air within the space and treating it, Mm -hmm. right? How many times does that cycle? Is the same air just sort of floating around the room, right? Mm -hmm. And all of this ties to kind of how air moves within our office spaces and whether it's moving at all, right? as these virus particulates float in the air, essentially around us, are we pulling those to the person that's sitting next to us? Are we actually just sucking them into our air handling systems and blowing them all over the office? So one of the things that's been the main focus of most um, kind of people that run office buildings is how do they upgrade these systems so that they can create a safer air environment. So, I mean, I, at least I professionally have seen that's, you know, one of the top items that all of our clients are looking at and upgrading.
1: Yeah. And I think, was, yeah, the, the current recommendation is six ACH. So that's changing the entire volume of air in a space six times in an hour, which is a lot of air moving.
3: That was a very, like thorough and probably the correct answer from Emily. <laughs> I'm going to take a different approach and say that um, ASHRAE and a lot of the professional organizations are stupid. because <laughs> They get so focused on a, a particular issue that they lose sight of, of the larger goals You know that we're trying to pursue when creating buildings. Um, to kind of throw it back to Chicago turn of the century architecture, you look at the development of the office building, which pretty much occurred here and take some of the best examples, the Monadnock, the Reliance building and the like, um, they had very shallow floor plates with large windows and the interior offices always had transoms on the doors. So you got cross ventilation, natural ventilation through the space. Um, and the bay windows help with that too, right? You could exactly, open up the yeah. side windows of the, the bay windows that ran the full height of the building and get get a breeze going through them, yeah. Yeah, so so then we you know invented air conditioning. I know another one of our favorite topics on Mailbag. Oh, we'll get to it. We'll get to it. Don't worry. <laughs> and uh, and as, you know at that point we started sealing up buildings and and making either non operable windows or discouraging building users, especially in commercial settings, from from opening any windows and really tightly controlling um, the air movement, as Emily described. And and then you know that leads us to a place where we're saying oh, six air changes per hour with no natural ventilation or breezes is acceptable for a building. And I don't think uh, if you take a step back or a lay person thinks about it, like that doesn't sound comfortable or healthy, certainly during a pandemic. Um, and and so it, it puts a lot of architects, building designers and, and owners, like building owners in a strange position where we want to, pursue natural ventilation strategies, figure out ways to open the buildings up and, and maybe do it in a smarter way, more contemporary way. Um, but there isn't, you know, great ASHRAE guidance on it. And and then you have to start like engaging other professionals that are even more specialized or, or maybe use more building science principles. Um, of course, that all comes as Right. It's often not accessible or, or not something that the owners are willing to pay for. So, yeah, um, main thesis of, of that rant against Astray is, um, you know, when we rely on these professional organizations to establish these kinds of standards, they get so so balkanized and so focused on their own discipline that we end up codifying um, things that are not good for the built environment yeah. and then Kind of mindlessly following them on the design side absolutely
1: yeah and sometimes it can be difficult to surmount that just because they are become part of the building code these standards and it, yeah i mean the best metaphor i have for it is like imagine you have a a, a building in a very sunny and, and it's the sun is shining but because uh you have a desire to very precisely control lighting and electricity, you don't put any windows in it. <laughs> and so then you can very precisely control the, you know, the lighting conditions inside the room, but you know, you have the sun outside, right? It's the same thing with, with natural ventilation and, that, and, and there's a kind of absurdity to that, right? Um, I mean, and I also think too, it, it's, it's the exact opposite guidance to like what we've been pursuing uh, as as a profession for like the last two or three decades what we've been trying to do is reduce air changes per hour uh because that's that's environmentally efficient right if our buildings are are, are leaking less um and you know okay like we're trying to reduce like the natural sort of turnover that doesn't include like the sort of ventilation equipment but it's you know we there there's there's a lot of sort of contradictory advice here i think one thing if people are interested in in their own homes and improving um ventilation without sort of sacrificing um some of the uh well first of all if you live in an older chicago building like you're probably good it's probably just leaky and hopefully you have radiator heat because if you have radiator heat the leaks don't really matter so much cuz they work in via infrared heating uh but but uh you know if uh if you live in a chicago apartment you're probably alright but um, if, if you live in a newer building, you can install something called an HRV, which is a heat recovery ventilator, and they're pretty cool. They've got like l- little ceramic honeycomb um, uh, sort of, I don't know, diffusers or, 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 or vents that the air vent blows through when it's going from the inside to the outside, and it absorbs the heat. And you have two of them on either side of your house. And they sort of switch directions so the air is kind of constantly moving in and out but the heat is being sort of recycled and you 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 get all the ventilation without having to sacrifice uh having to reheat uh new air which is pretty neat so there's like some cool stuff like that that's coming up on um uh, that maybe will help with this
2: yeah you know, um, i just wanted to point out too like i think you touched on it a little nick but One of the weird things about the building codes and the standards agencies, and my wife actually worked with international standards for a long time, and she could deliver a half-hour rant on why they're all BS, Um, because as I think Kiefer mentioned, they're set up by agencies that then look to make a profit on them. Uh, whether it's for a nonprofit or whether it's for a for profit corporation, a lot of these standards are developed by corporations that just want to privilege their own piece of technology. And Apple is a great example of that. Anytime Apple comes out with a new interface, they want to privilege it as part of the USB chain. So it's either, you know, USB B, USB C, USB D, and they want everybody to switch to their their little things, which they own a patent on and they get paid for. Um, but in terms of the things about air exchange, one of the things that strikes me as very odd is Right now, we're talking a lot about this because we're in a pandemic, and I understand that. But overall, one of the things that we really need to be focusing on more is the environmental cost of this. Air conditioning and heating and cooling outside of natural ventilation and and solar passive heating is incredibly expensive and incredibly toxic. And one of the things we're seeing in Chicago, we're becoming a giant heat sink in, in part because Everything's paved and because we have so many large office buildings that are sealed and then attempted to be controlled with both heating and cooling. And that is not a sustainable thing even in the next 15 years. We're going to have to change that. And I actually wondered, you know, Emily, since you work with office buildings, I've been wondering whether these large, tall skyscrapers that really cannot have a lot of natural ventilation because, you know, as you get higher, you have winds and wind shear and all that kind of stuff. Is that a sustainable even building model? going forward when we need to also think about the things that led to this current health crisis as well as environmental issues?
0: I think that's something that a lot of people are asking right now and sort of how do we move forward and what is the future of work look like? You know, we've really been in this paradigm of like office buildings, these larger towers, getting a lot of density, right? Over the last 10 years, even within our office spaces, right? It's been about packing people in, like how can you get more people within a smaller office space, right? We get these benches and I think anyone listening who's been working in an office will know that, you know, you used to sit in like maybe an eight by eight cubicle and that was seen as like smaller than an office. And now like a lot of us sit at like six foot long benches or we did before the pandemic. So a lot of it's been about packing people in and getting density within these buildings. And I think there's been, the pandemic has been a big pause on that, both because we look at, you know, well, we can't sit that closely, but also it's made us reevaluate if that's even the right decision. Is that what the future of work looks like? And I think there's a lot of questions like, you know, we've got building owners that do own these like dense buildings, and they're even looking for, how do we break up that density within the office building? Is there something else that we can provide as a building owner within this building that makes it more sustainable? Can we bring in different program? Meaning like, is there different functions that we can take parts of these buildings and turn them over to something else that both breaks up this density, but provides opportunities for the people that are here within the office? And that's one way to use an existing building. And I think when we look at new office buildings or what the future of work looks like, it's something different again, right? And I think there's also, I mean, we've been really hard on our, you know, <laughs> our codes and our building standards in this rant, but there's also some new ones that are interesting too. Like uh, well building standards is kind of a newer newer thing within office. And it's a standard that looks at sort of health and well-being within office spaces and also just buildings in general, but they're very focused on office. And one of the things that they look at is, you know, the whole existence of the building and all of the things within it. They talk about ventilation, they talk about well-being, they talk about light. I mean, there's even parts of that standard that look at you know, whether food is provided and whether that food within the building is healthy. Um, so these are, you know, lead and WELL and some of these other standards have become something that a lot of people are looking to now in terms of how can we make better buildings. And again, as we've talked about earlier in this program, like maybe that's not the way of going about it. Like these standards are one prescriptive path to take, but they do present some interesting options, and I think we'll see a lot more mixed use and smaller office buildings going forward, a lot more interest in live-work units, and a lot more interest in dispersing working environments from these dense urban cores more into neighborhoods, so can we work and live more in our kind of 15-minute Walking vicinity rather than having everyone go into these dense cores of office buildings where we're seeing some environmental problems.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, um, I, that's a really interesting, interesting point. And I, I, you know, I'm curious how all of this will unfold over the next year. Um, yeah, I think go, going back to Jamie's sort of comment about how these standards become sort of, uh, Political arenas for various interest groups. I, I did just want. I, I, I was reminded that uh, about a month ago, I was looking through some of the the um, international energy code sort of development uh, uh, comments and uh, ad- meeting agendas and things like this. And one of the one of the things that was um, in that code it was really or being proposed was a provision that. Um, any gas-fired appliance needed to be installed with a 240 volt uh, electrical outlet uh, within three feet. And the logic there is that if you're installing a gas-fired appliance, that's all fine and well, but you you need to provide an option by code uh, for electrification. If somebody at some point wanted to switch some heating or cooling or other building equipment to electric, they would be able to do so. And this electrification of buildings is like a key demand of the Green New Deal because when you're plugging into a grid, it's much easier to like make the whole energy grid green with, you know, solar farms, wind farms, things like this, than it is to sort of try to make a, you know, a little eco house for yourself. And so, uh, and, and uh, there's a kind of huge environmental catastrophe uh, sort of looming with like aging natural gas infrastructure. So electrification is a big deal. And the, 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 it was really fascinating to, to see the kind of comments in that proceeding, because on one, on one side, you had like a little tiny, like environmental think tank that had like proposed that code provision. And then like, they were on the same side as like Tesla, like was advocating for electrification. And then you had like all of the, the natural gas lobbies and everything else. And I'm sitting there reading this and it's interesting because for different code provisions, like that alliance totally switches up. Right. But, but I'm sitting there thinking like, this is not how we should be deciding these priorities as a society, right? Like, it's like the furthest thing from, from democracy. And, and ultimately it's like a consortium of like local code officials that has the say in that, in that particular code development process. But I was just like, you know, it's one of those things where you're like, this is just not, something's not right. Yeah. But that right. code is what governs like track home construction in the suburbs. So it would be really good if, you know, we could we could have a huge impact um, uh, on things by, by sort of modifying the codes.
2: With that note, we need to take a break for station identification and to thank the folks that made this program possible. Kiefer Dunn, we'll be right back with Buildings on Air after this break.
1: All right, folks, we've covered the hard hitting issues of our time. But, um, you know, I'm about to, to, to ask a question that's an even harder hitting issue. I'm buying a house with a bidet. Should I replace it with a urinal? These are the real questions. <laughs> These are the real questions. I'm fine. I'm glad we're finally getting to this. Nick, Emily, what do you think?
3: <laughs> Why not both?
0: poor k no uh i will say i have been offered random toilets and urinals from from jobs where it's like oh we're taking this out like do you want a urinal and my question is always like pause contractor what am i gonna do with a urinal
2: (laughs) (laughs) and resume (laughs) Well, yeah yeah why would you take the b-day i guess i don't understand why you would take the b-day out like that's the first part of the question i'm not understanding
1: uh yeah uh, the listener offers no explanation presumably they are not interested in uh bidets, but i i found as a residential architect that uh bidets are on on the rise here they're a, a desirable a desirable fixture in the 21st century um or or more desirable than they were at least years ago um i don't know
3: that's yeah i I think depending on your bathroom um you'll probably have three fixtures usually a a sink and vanity a toilet and a shower sounds like this person has four fixtures right now and so if they're using looking for maximum usability and utility i might suggest yeah replace the bidet with the urinal replace the toilet with a newer toilet model that has an integrated bidet, self cleaning even, it's available for surprisingly little money, um, and and then you have kind of the best of everything. Yeah, the advances in toilet technology are really are really amazing. <laughs> it is shocking if you know if uh, governmental policy and codes advanced as quickly as toilet technology. Like we'd be living in the Jetsons. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. I, I mean, have you ever have you have any of you ever been in a in a house with a urinal? I don't think I ever have.
2: Uh, like you, you actually have because uh, in my basement. I think you were at my house. I used to have one in the basement that was set up as a joke uh, by a plumber friend of mine, and it used to be like across from our laundry machine. This was <laughs> this was pre-fire, but it, it did work. It was, it, we had found it the guy, when we bought this house in the nineties, the guy had been like a hoarder and he had a urinal here. So when we were replumbing the thing, uh, one of my buddies hooked it up and put it in. And so you have been in a house with, with a urinal. There you go.
1: That's, com- that's real commitment to the bit. I, you know, I can appreciate, I can appreciate that.
2: <laughs> it was, it was, re- it was true commitment to the bit.
1: Uh, yeah.
2: I just,
0: yeah. I lived in a frat house for a summer in New Orleans, and they had decided at some point right after Hurricane Katrina that it was just urinals were much more efficient for the boys that lived there. So they had replaced all of the toilets in the building except like one with urinals. So of the like four bathrooms in the house, three of them were urinals exclusively. So there was... Yeah. one bathroom, which was always really
1: funny. That, that kind of makes absolute
3: sense in the context of a fraternity house. <laughs> like. <laughs> and, and as uh, inebriated and generally incorrect as frat bros may be, they were correct. Urinals are much more efficient and use much less water than a regular toilet. So maybe the answer is yes. If, if you are, um, you know, if you have a, a male, Uh, someone identifying as a male who's going to use the urinal in your household, it may be worthwhile to go ahead and uh, replace the bidet and save all that water. Wow. Yeah. All right. There you you have it, folks. Nationalize the standards
1: of developing organizations, install urinals. Uh, (laughs) All right. Moving on to the next question. And let's see here. I see ads for contractors saying that they are bonded and insured. I understand what insured means, but what does bonded mean in this context?
2: Well, I, I can answer that one as somebody who's worked for a, a contractor. Um, when you're bonded, it means you've actually posted bond or you're working with a bond company that says that you're going to pay if there's a claim against you. So um, it's another level of protection. It's it's kind of old fashioned, but in New York state, you had to provide a money bond that could be held in case you didn't pay off your bills in case somebody filed a lien against you for non, you know, completion of work or whatever, or if there was a legal dispute, it, you know? So in other words, it it was a tangible asset that was held by a third party that could be tapped on um, legally if there was a building dispute.
3: Yeah. Perfect. Yeah.
1: I mean, I, and, I, and it's, it keeps you from having to necessarily go through the whole rigmarole of filing the insurance claim, which you might need to do eventually. Right, but,
2: and you yeah. just just like also just to people might be thinking of bail bondsmen. It works the same way. You know, a contractor will put up a certain amount of money that will be matched. You know, for example, it's usually a percentage of of the bond. Um, and again, it works in a weird way, like insurance, just as a bail bond does. For example, if you are incarcerated and you are still in a state that has cash bond, which thankfully Illinois is getting rid of, um, you would put up, say, 10% of whatever the judge has said you need to put up. So, for example, if the judge has said you're you're held on $10,000 bond, you might have to put up anywhere from a dollars to $1,000. And it works the same way in the building trades. You have to put up a certain amount of money that's a fixed amount that someone will match as part of the consortium or whatever you're part of. Um, but then you're you're ultimately responsible for that as the contractor.
1: I um this, I think, is exactly the opening we need to pitch my uh, my idea for a dog, the bounty hunter property brothers, you know, crossover series.
0: <laughs>
1: you know, uh, all right. <laughs> so, <Yes>. uh <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's the television programming we all need.
1: I, yeah. I mean, move over to exotic, right? Uh, you know, here we go. <laughs> Buckle up. <laughs> uh, next question. Uh help um (laughs) that's not that's not the question help i've uh i bought a 75 watt light bulb but i just realized that my light fixture is only rated for a maximum of 60 watts do i need to be
3: worried about fire or anything else what kind of light is it if it is an led more likely than not the 75 watt is a watt equivalent um that you would the trying to equivocate the amount of light coming out of that um, with the amount of light put out by a 70 watt incandescent or perhaps compact fluorescent bulb. Um, If you read a little bit more closely, and it is in fact an LED, which please everybody don't buy incandescent light bulbs here in 2021, they're incredibly wasteful. Um, If you read a little bit more closely, you'll probably see more detailed information on the bulb's actual Power requirements and light output probably is gonna be fine.
1: Yeah. And I think assuming it even is an incandescent bulb, there's 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 a non-zero risk of <laughs> fire here but I wouldn't be too I wouldn't be overly worried about it because it's like a 15 watt difference but in good conscience I you know on the airwaves of and radio I cannot recommend it uh you know I would just I would I would I would buy an led bulb as Nick is suggesting uh it's going to take 10 watts in actuality or whatever um and be much more efficient for you and led lights now come in a range of color temperatures because I think um when Obama first banned incandescent bulbs in some instances um uh, thanks Obama uh you know <laughs> actually in this in this specific instance um uh you know a lot of the LED bulbs that were out there were like super like blue or like you know I I, I like they I I felt that the the color the sort of temperature of the lighting was was not great um in terms of color temperature, but but now now you can get them in almost any color uh, temperature you want. I I'm very partial to uh, dim yellow lighting in my house, uh, you know, to get into my evening vibes. Um, it's a requirement in these old Chicago buildings. To That's right. Situate it's the woodwork and the plaster. exactly. Yeah. It feels very wrong to have a bright white bulb in a in an old tree flat.
2: Yeah. yeah. See, I thought you were more the disco ball, lava lamp, uh, <laughs> you know, rotating type, but guess I read you wrong, Kiefer.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, Jamie. Uh, yeah, um, you know, maybe maybe on, on 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 certain occasions I'll swap out the fixtures, but <laughs> uh, next question. In this winter's big snowstorms, I noticed lots and lots of huge icicles hanging from gutters all over the city. Isn't this dangerous? How can it be prevented? Did y'all get big gutters and, uh, or big icicles? Oh, we have
3: the hugest icicle. Is it dangerous? I suppose I haven't I was kind of surprised that I didn't didn't see any uh, impalements <laughs> or other serious injuries come up in the news. Um It certainly can be dangerous and and I believe to some extent the Chicago building code addresses it, you know, especially if there's water coming into the the habitable area. Um, The best way to address it is if it's already happened, do nothing, wait for it to melt. That's the very best thing you can do. Um, Then the next summer, if you want to prevent it in the following year. It's just all about the level of insulation that you have on your roof. And, and the goal is to, you know, when the snow is up there, keep it as snow, don't let it melt and turn into water, which then kind of saturates the rest of the snow, creates ice dams and that short circuits the gutter so that the water is then flowing directly over the gutter. And that, that creates the really long ice symbols. Um, old three flats. Going, the theme for today um, usually are not well insulated and the amount of work required to, to, you know, create a really well insulated roof or ideally a cold roof um, where that surface stays the same temperature as the outside air is just, it's kind of impossible to do on, on these old buildings. So a good stopgap is to, to put some heat trace or, you know, a little, um, resistive electric wire in the gutter itself and perhaps the first five feet of roof that will ensure that as the the water gets to the gutter it remains liquid and drains into your catch basin yeah
2: yeah because it can cause serious roof damage i mean that's that's the other thing i i think most of the ice related injuries i think are really more based on large buildings with ice falling off them and hitting people below them. Emily probably could speak to that more than I. But, you know, I think one of the things as a homeowner you're most worried about is if that ice freezes and then raises up your shingles, it can creep back in your house and um, it will destroy the underlayment of your roof and your roof will eventually rot. And um, a roof is one of the more expensive things to fix on your house. So in cold climates, such as the, the Midwest and the upper Midwest, Roof maintenance is something you do have to be um, really aware of, which is why you see all these very hectoring commercials about Leaf Guard and Gutter Guard on on the evening news here that seem to be aimed at scaring, uh, you know, seven year old people living in Schaumburg. Um, it's it's because ice dams actually, if they're allowed to build up over a number of years and you have that problem, uh, you're going to get handed a five to ten thousand dollar bill to to fix the top of your dwelling.
1: Yeah. It's going to be a bumper year if you're in the, the roof and gutter repair uh, business, I think. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, like, and this, this idea of ice dams is so so critical. It's, it's, and it's really intuitive once you think about it, right? Like, the water, because heat rises and, and uh, you know, the tops of built, there's heat coming from the tops of buildings. If it's not well insulated, as Nick was explaining, the water melts. And then when it gets to the edge, it hits that cold air again, and it freezes, and then it creates a dam for that other for more water, and then it backs up and up and up with more and more ice, and um, that creates that sort of uh, you know action that Jamie was describing, where the ice gets back up and under things and causes serious problems. Um, yeah, the those are and those are great practical solutions. Uh, fantastic. Um, next question. Um, I want my guest room to be styled around 1984. What should I do? Um, and if you're wondering, is this 1984, the movie or the year? The, the follow-up uh, explains. <laughs> I'm already I'm already planning on keeping my floral bedding, changing the curtains to pink, and keeping the dried flower wreath next to a mirror I have above my dresser. What other recommendations do you have? So this is not like, you know, Talking heads, like Gang of Four, like pop punk, sort of like uh, Andy Warhol, 1980s. This is like, you know, your grandmother's parlor, 1980s. Um, oh, okay. So okay.
2: What, what are you know? What what can we do to ha- ha- to? to, to it, how- I was I was really worried Edmar had written this question. You what? I was really worried Edmar had written this question.
0: <laughs> First off, can I say yes? writer yes uh first step go on instagram follow 80s interiors best instagram 80s interiors inspiration ever from you know your fountains within the center of malls to exactly what you're looking for which is a nice 1980s bedroom first i would say 80s interiors loves a white laminate anything you've got furniture you got to make that white it's got to be semi-gloss kind of finish that'll really set you up and carpet carpet yes to carpet
1: especially in
3: bathrooms yes (laughs) or bathrooms in bedroom yeah just put (laughs) the urinal in the bedroom (laughs)
0: Oh, or better yet, put a bathtub in the bedroom. Uh Yes, that's real 80s luxury when you don't need to leave your bedroom to take a nice soak. Yeah, it's all
1: about convenience. Mm. I would would also recommend like, you know, tiny portable televisions. They're probably pretty cheap and easy to find. Potpourri dishes, critical. You know, those are the, the, the smaller touches that I think could elevate this aesthetic (laughs) um you know uh uh, yes framed posters yeah framed posters absolutely framed
0: posters and that frame has to be nice and thin like you know max half inch frame on there
2: yeah hot white you know that nice shiny gloss uh yeah and it's got to be the oversized so the area of the picture is just surrounded by that thin floating frame
1: yeah yeah um look and wicker you need like at least one wicker chair
0: yeah and you can spray paint that thing white or any color of pink teal or purple you want
1: Uh uh-huh that's right well i think we've answered that to satisfaction i you know dear listener please send us pictures um (laughs) you know uh, and i'm also curious for I'm, i'm sure somebody out there has also styled their guest room in the theme of 1984, the the novel by George Orwell, in which case I would also like to see pictures of that. If if, if you're listening to this show, um, next question, um, you know, the most important question. It wouldn't be a mailbag if we didn't if we didn't have a question about air conditioning. What can I do about my upstairs neighbor's leaking AC unit? A tenant lives on top of me, and I went to go check his AC. It turns out his AC was obviously leaking, but he told me to leave because he was busy. I called the upstairs homeowner, presumably a tenant's landlord, and he is insisting that I don't have proof that it is his home that is leaking. Am I screwed or is there any action that I can take? And I'm, I'm trying to like imagine this. I imagine what's happening is that, I don't know, maybe it's like a, there's like a, the, the level above is smaller than the, the level that is being occupied and there's like an air conditioning compressor that is like over top of one of the living on the outside of the building, uh, on the roof above the the, the the tenant who has sent in this question. Um, so what 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 is to be done uh, in, in this instance? What, and, and first of all, what is like like what is this leak?
2: I mean, is this, are we talking about condensed water or, or, I mean, is it leaking goo? I mean, the, the, obvi- <laughs> the obvious thing to do here is to trip the breaker and then the air conditioning doesn't work. I mean, I don't necessarily want to, you know, encourage people to do something like that, but that does solve the problem. Yeah.
0: I think we've went to entered the land of passive aggressiva as your only real option now. It seems as if you've done all the ethical things you can do we're now into take it into your own hands territory.
3: Yeah. Well, there are um, some certain provisions in the Chicago Building Code um, relating to like the the ingress of water into buildings. And I think if the, it sounds like they're in a condo building of unknown size, <clears throat> they probably don't have an HOA or management association. Otherwise, they would deal with it. So <clears throat> the approach here would probably be to, you know, actually make a report with the department of buildings that there's water ingress in your building being caused by the property owner above you Mm -hmm. and uh, if that doesn't directly solve the issue it could at least prompt um that property owner to to address it to avoid the hassle of the department of buildings coming out to see what the heck is going on
1: uh, yeah, and I'm I'm assuming that it's not like the freon or the, like the coolant from the air conditioning system leaking, because then that upstairs homeowner would be very upset because their air conditioning would very obviously be not working. Uh, but but I think it's it's probably some sort of condensation related to the air conditioning system, and that condensation can really add up. Like it's surprising how much. And so maybe there's a and usually there's condensation drains or lines or so, some other way of dealing with this. And it wouldn't surprise me if that, that that's the system that has sprung a leak or is not being routed to the right way. So yeah, I think you could probably, you might be able to go inspect the condensation drain setup up there and like affect, a, you know, 2 a.m. repair with some PVC pipe or duct tape or something. <laughs> yeah, uh, that might do the job.
0: Or you can just set up a bird bath below it and, you know, really like harness this power, this water for the power of good.
1: That's right. That's, that's going, bringing us full circle to our holistic building solution. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Jamie, how many, do we have time for one more? We've got question? time for one more. Yeah. All right. Um, let's see this. How about, uh, well, I have, a, I have a very, I have a very well silly question. Um, is there, is, does the California King size bed exist in
2: other states besides
1: California?
2: Yes. I've got, I've got one in my bedroom. What are you talking about? (laughs) California King's the way to go kids. Let me just say that Cali King. It's great.
1: But you don't, you don't call it an Illinois King. Even though Jamie, we all know you are an you are an Illinois king, but it's still a California king. It but. is. It
2: is still. If you want to get the sheets that fit it, yes, you better, you better
1: you better order
2: them for the California king and not the Illinois king. <laughs> and let me tell you those sheets are costly
1: yeah yeah well i mean it's basically half an acre of material the beds are gigantic yeah
2: they are you know it's great too because in the in the summer it's so breezy and you can roll around and in the winter <laughs> you can get all the blankets oh man california king's the way to go just telling you kids if you got the room
3: you must have Demoed some walls in your your house renovation, right, Jamie? Uh,
2: See, now this is going back to our original conversation about old houses. So Bridgeport bedrooms, for people that don't know, actually can't really get anything bigger than like a queen maybe, maybe a king like the existing. Um, We did. When we had the fire, I blew out two bedrooms, uh, took the wall out, uh, threw a new beam in, and then uh, the two bedrooms became one. So the bed, however, because um, if people can kind of visualize this, our, our houses are very tall. Very vertical, but they're also very kind of narrow and straight, like a old-fashioned railway apartment in a weird way. So, like our bed is actually kind of like it goes, and then the wall between our bedroom and the uh, living room, there's about oh maybe a two or three inches of space because the California king is also quite long. So it's really cool. You can we have two doors in our bedroom now, so because you can't actually get from one side of the bedroom to the other, you have to walk around because the the bed the bed still occupies the the bed the bed takes up a a tremendous amount of area it is a real commitment to sleeping let me just say this uh, real real committed loungers get a california king which which my wife and i are
3: amazing yeah my level of respect for you jamie is at an all-time high now oh
2: thank you thank you you guys do you guys not have a california king no, I'm a, I'm
1: on that queen queen-size bed life. Uh, oh, I still have an unmodified bridgeport uh, bedroom.
2: Wow. Yeah, you know, once I'll tell you man, once you get the, the Cali King, you never go back. I actually when I first moved into this house, I had to put the king into the what was the kitchen. Because it was too big for anything else. So for a couple months, I was actually sleeping next to a stove. <laughs> and uh, I left when we did the renovation. This is a this is a good tip, people. If you have a sink in your bedroom, it's amazing. Leave the sink in your bedroom because at night you want that cold glass of water. It's it's right next to you. Just leave that sink if you're gonna do that.
1: Uh. Amazing. Uh, yeah. And Nick Nick and Emily, do you do you, do you have any, any thoughts on, on beds beds and bed sizes or or Jamie's Jamie's napping situation uh, that you'd like to share to round us out for the for the afternoon?
0: I'm just so impressed. <laughs> I'm just so impressed. Uh speaking because like yeah this is a real challenge in chicago so i'm assuming this writer is maybe not in chicago i think my follow-up question for jamie here is how did you even manage to get the california king into the house Mm. because the other thing once you so say you created the room for the california king which is like mad props (laughs) real respect here but then I assume you had to get it up the staircase, like the sheer logistics of this, I'm so impressed.
2: So when, I, this is, you want to, you really wanna know the truth? The back porch of our house uh, was being built by Ann and Craig, they were the architects on it, and there was a point where the windows weren't in, so we put the king through the back windows, and then the door, we the door was taken off and the transom window that was over the door was no longer there, so we could take it in sideways, and then it had to be scooched, it took four of us to get it in. The, the actual bed frame comes in, in two parts, so you can get the lower mattress in, but the big upper guy, yeah, that, that took a while, took a while. So you, I will say there are modern bed manufacturers now that will make a king in different types of materials um, that are a little more pliable. I think the old springs, you know what I mean, are, are very tough to move, but some of them that are made actually out of more sustainable ingredients like thistle... Um, I, I'm not really a foam person, but uh, y- you can get bedding that's made out of like recycled cotton and and uh, thistle is a is a good one. Um, it actually is a little more bendable, so you you have a little more room to move things in and out. Yeah.
0: And yeah. last piece, if you do want to upgrade your bed sizes, one of the things that's also out there in the market is you can get essentially a king that's in two pieces where they kind of connect the two mattresses mm-hmm. with like a. Joiner kind of strip in the center, yeah. Um, which I think there's some strong opinions out there in the market as to whether this is good or not, but it can provide you options if you don't have three windows out in your back porch and you still want to upgrade your space, yeah.
1: Uh, I cannot believe that this show, um, unlike is is not sponsored by a direct-to-consumer mattress company. Like every other 21st century, you know, radio program slash podcast. Come on, uh, You know, you know who you are. Hit us up. Uh, you know, we'd love to have you as an underwriter on <laughs> Uh Well, I think that brings us to the end of the show. Um, uh, Nick and Emily, thank you guys so much for joining Buildings On Air. Uh, Jamie, it's so good to see you. Thanks for all you do producing the show. And yeah, hopefully we'll get back to our regular sort of two hour format with our regular, regular segments Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and, uh, in-person interviews in the, in the near future. I think, um, that will be possible, maybe not in the next few months, but, but I, I see a light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, in the meantime, we'll, uh, keep the show going as regularly as we can on our monthly schedule here, um, with our altered format, but it was nice to have a. A little slice of normal with today's mailbag. So, uh, thanks everyone.
0: <laughs> it was truly my pleasure. This has been Buildings on Air on Lumpen Radio. Buildings on Air is a production of Lumpen Radio, hosted by Kiefer Dunn, produced by Logan Bay and Jamie Trecker. Visit us on the web at buildingsonair.live. If you want us to answer your questions about buildings on the air, send them via Twitter at BLDGSonair or via email at BuildingsOnAir@gmail.com. at gmail.com. This show is also available as a podcast on iTunes.